This morning we're celebrating what is known as Palm Sunday, leading us into Passion Week, inviting us to contemplate once again the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so we're taking a break from our Everyday Discipleship series, but John's Gospel actually connects the so-called triumphal entry with a call to discipleship from Jesus. And I think that the big question of this text is, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Jesus says, whoever serves me must follow me. But in our text or story, what that following looks like radically shifts. Our story starts in a very different place. In fact, almost the exact opposite place of where Jesus takes it. It begins with a kingly procession. What people thought was a government overthrow with shouts of, save us right now. These are shouts of political overthrow. And yet it ends with Jesus's invitation, come and die. What is this all about? Well, let's talk about the so-called triumphal entry. There's so much going on in this chapter. And so let me just kind of set the context or background for you. The tension has risen in Jerusalem and among the Jewish people to the maximum capacity. We heard it from the religious leaders. You see, the whole world is going after him, Jesus. The passage directly preceding this is with the Jewish Supreme Court. They have decided that the only thing they can do to keep from losing their authority from losing their place is to have Jesus handed over to the Roman authorities and have him put to death. You see, after Jesus' sign of raising Lazarus from the dead, it says that many people basically switched sides and were now following Jesus. And so this means that they were no longer following, listening to, or esteeming the Jewish leadership. And so tensions are, they're high. Not only that, but it was the time of Passover. This was the festival that commemorated God's great deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt. This was really the celebration of the birth of the Jewish nation. And so this meant that every Jew would make their way to Jerusalem at this time to celebrate the feast. So Jerusalem was bustling with the Jewish community, it was crowded, it was filled with all of this anticipation. They're thinking about God's great deliverance. Jesus' popularity has risen to this maximum capacity. Tensions are hot and high. And so as Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem, as he approaches, his reputation has preceded him and the people begin to hail him. This is the moment. The long-awaited Messiah, the Deliverer, is here. And we know that not only because of their words, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel, but also by their actions. They took palm branches and went out to meet them, meet him, waving them, taking off their coats and making, as it were, kind of this red carpet for Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem. Now, the palm branch was symbolic. 
In fact, it was the image that the rebels or zealots in Israel used when they minted their own coins to fund their insurrections. It was an act of defiance against Rome's economy. And the palm branch first shows up because of the Maccabean celebration of their victory over the Seleucid Empire. So we need to understand what's happening here. It's almost like if you could mix Passover and Hanukkah. That's what's happening here at the triumphal entry. The Jews are celebrating Jesus like this because they think that this is the moment when they will be delivered from Roman tyranny. This is the moment that the kingdom of David will be reestablished. In their mind, this is it. The reign of Messiah and God's kingdom is now here. The Jews see this as a moment to take back their lives, to once again reclaim the land as they had tried many times, to once again reclaim their identity, to once again reclaim the power. And I'm not sure, maybe you've read this probably many, many times. You've probably come to many Palm Sunday gatherings. But I wonder how, if we understand how politically charged this moment is. And this is the amazing thing about this passage is that Jesus doesn't play their game at all. It's astounding. He's on a completely different path. And he's going to define for them, once again, what he's all about and what his kingdom is all about. Now, he doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't stop them from hailing him as the king because he is. He is God's anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the king. And in fact, he is here to rescue. He's here to save. But not in the way that anyone thinks. And so Jesus defines himself in one move, which is just so I just love it. It's amazing. What does he do? Well, Simon Maccabee, Maccabeus, excuse me, he rode into Jerusalem, palm branches waving. He rode in on a war horse. Jesus gets a baby donkey and rides into Jerusalem. I mean, you guys, we're talking like knees up all the way. Now, you remember those like mechanical horses that were outside of... Um, yeah, grocery stores back in the day. Imagine a full-grown man on that mechanical horse, right? You know the mechanical horse is about yay high, doing this? Full-grown man on that thing. Knees up, legs probably dragging on the ground. This is how Jesus rides into Jerusalem. It's scriptural, Zechariah 9, but it's comical. And it's meant to be. I said it's scriptural. He is fulfilling the prophecy. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble. Oh, yes, very. Knees up, feet dragging on the ground as he rides this colt into Jerusalem. So in one word or one move, Jesus just kind of flips this whole thing on his head, on its head. He is the humble king as he rides in. 
Now, of course, this doesn't stop the crowds. They still cheer and celebrate. And I think it's really kind of lost on them. Everybody's just in hysteria. They don't really get what's happening there. They're like, okay, we're going. Like, they're still pumped. They still think that this is the moment. Now, among those who went up to the feast are some Greeks. And they are probably, you know, God-fears. They've come to the festival to celebrate. And it's interesting, they find Philip the one of Jesus' disciples with a Greek name, and they ask for an audience with Jesus. And as you read John's gospel, it almost seems like maybe this is the moment that Jesus will really challenge the religious leaders and he'll bring the Greeks into the inner circle and all these things are gonna happen. They wanna see Jesus. And you think it's gonna be this incredible moment and we don't even know what happens because as they're brought to Jesus, it says this, Jesus replied, now, where are we at here? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. It's this heightened moment Crowds are going wild. People are being brought to Jesus. There's mass hysteria, and we don't even know what happens because Jesus goes off on some meditative comment about seeds, plants, life, death, servants, and masters. Jesus, what are you doing? What is going on? Jesus is on his own triumphal Entry. Jesus has his own path to glory, and it's not the one of Jerusalem. It's not the one of the religious leaders. It's not the one of the crowds. Now, this becomes the turning point of John's gospel. If you've ever done any studying of it, uh, many commentators actually split the book in two, chapters 1 through 11 being the book of signs, and chapters 12 through 21 being called the book of of glory because of this statement here. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And this has been the hour that John, this has been the hour that Jesus have talked about continually through this gospel. Remember, it will say again and again, for his hour had not yet come. We think about the changing of the water to wine and he says, woman, you know, what does this concern me? My hour has not yet come. And Jesus keeps on referring to this, and John refers to it again and again. But here we are, chapter 12. This is the moment, Jesus says. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's finally arrived, and yet it's not what the people expect. It is the exact opposite. The lifting up or glorification of the Son of Man will be manifest through the gruesome death of the cross. Jesus, yes, will be exalted, lifted up on a pole, crucified, drowning in his own blood, crying out, maddening things. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is not the lifting up the exaltation that the people are expecting. And yet, it will be the sign that will draw all 
people. In fact, it will be Jesus's greatest sign so far for all people to see, for all people to believe on. In fact, as Jesus says, it will be like a grain of wheat or a seed. If the seed is left alone, it doesn't do much, but if it falls into the earth and dies, buried in the ground, planted a picture of death, it will produce a fruitful crop. And so what looks like the grain or seed's demise will in fact be the very thing that brings fruit. It will be the very thing that brings the harvest. Now I refer to this whole scene earlier as the so-called triumphal entry because everything Jesus is doing is backwards and upside down. You see, the people are hailing Jesus as the conquering king, and he's talking about being executed. And in that time, there was no understanding of a suffering Messiah, quite the opposite. The Messiah was the conqueror. He was the liberator. He was the son of David. He was like Judas Maccabeus who would violently overthrow the enemies of the people of God and usher in the kingdom. But Jesus's kingdom vision is very different from his contemporaries. And it's different from our own ideas of power and kingship, even to this day. You remember we talked about this a few weeks ago. We talked about how Paul exhorts the church to use power. Jesus isn't talking about their violent politics and hostile takeovers. He is plundering the kingdom of darkness. He's talking about the kingdom of God in a way that no one ever has. He isn't keeping up with their beloved traditions. He's purposely going against them. He isn't giving honor and care to the religious system and leaders of the day. He's giving it to the poor, the possessed, the disenfranchised, the outcast, the Gentile, the tax collector, and the prostitute. Jesus isn't talking about violent death to his enemies, but his own violent death at the hand of his enemies and his subsequent rising from the dead. It's so backwards. It's so upside down, and here's the deal. We are no different than the Jews of Jesus' day. We can miss the work of God, the kingdom of God, because we have gotten wrapped up in false narratives. False narratives that actually could potentially be biblical. We could maybe even find biblical grounds for these things, biblical grounds for these interpretations. And yet we have to look closely at Jesus, not just what he says, but what he does. In order that we might faithfully follow him and not miss out on his kingdom work. And so this is what Jesus came here to do. It's the main purpose for which he came. He came to give his life, that through his death, we who were subject to sin and death might have life. He came that we who were far from God, not part of the family or the promises, might be brought in and made children of God. He came so that we who were under the power and oppression of idols and spiritual forces 
might be brought under his liberating kingdom and power. He is the grain of wheat who dies, who is buried, but whose death brings a fruitful crop to the people of the earth. He's the king who thinks of others more than himself, as Zechariah prophesied, the humble king who brings salvation. And yet, let's not miss this text. This text is not only about Jesus. It is about any and all who would serve him and follow him. And that's where Jesus takes this. He calls us to follow him through death on to resurrection life. Jesus continues, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me, let them follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be, and my father will honor the one who serves me. These are incredible statements that Jesus is making. And to me, as I read it, I think Jesus is basically saying the same thing twice. And I would just like to, if I could, paraphrase kind of what I think is happening in this whole scenario. As Jesus is watching the hysteria of the crowds, as he's watching this politically heightened moment, I believe that this is Jesus' kind of perspective and his invitation out of it. You see all this talk and excitement of reclaiming the kingdom the Jewish identity, the glory of Israel through violence and insurrection, this violence, this overthrow, this taking by force, this insistence, this grasping for your life, this is how life in this world works and it will get you nowhere. It will not give you the kingdom it will not usher in the glory. It will not bring the peace that you're looking for. And I'm not here for all of that. I am here for a greater kingdom. I'm here for a greater glory. So throw down your palm. Hand your life over to me if you want to truly save it. Come and follow me. Throw down your palm. Remember the palm, it represents the insurrectionist movements, the taking back by force of our lives, our rights. And Jesus says, that's not what I'm here for. I'm here for you. I'm here for you. Hand it over. Give your life to me. Of course, Jesus is using hyperbole when he asks us to hate our lives. I think many people have almost misunderstood this. And I talked about this a few weeks ago. Almost like when we come to Jesus, we think that we have to just kind of wipe our personality, wipe our story, wipe our passions, just like clean completely, you know, a clean slate. Or maybe we have to go back to what we rebelled against originally. Like, I'm just gonna say this, and I hope this doesn't like burn everything down. <laughs> But sometimes I get super confused when I look at like the Jesus people movement and I think about how so many hippies swung so far right over the years. And I just mean politically, like it just kind of astonishes me. And it's like, if you are 
politically right or politically left, fine. What I am concerned about, are you bringing all of that into the filter of Jesus? Is Jesus king? Is he first and foremost? Do you bring all of that through the kingdom of Christ filter? But it really has astounded me. And I think some of this has to do with we thought that we had to correct ourselves by like this love of the earth, by this love of peace and harmony, that we had to get rid of all those things rather than bringing them into the Jesus identity. See, when when I read scripture, what I see is that God wants to just overflow our personalities. He wants to hand over us to hand over our lives because he made us. He knows what we're for. He gave us the passions that we have. He gave us the culture that we grew up in. And culture isn't bad or good. It just is. But he wants to infuse it with his glory. He wants to infuse it with his life. This is what he wants from us. Not that we would simply be these zombies, that he could just take over our brains and then just live through us. No, but that he might animate the whole person with his life, with his goodness, that he might overflow into us and that we might flow out onto the world. Think that this is what Jesus is saying when he, wants, when he calls us to hate our lives. He means that we would follow him so closely that all other desires and relationships look like hate in comparison. He wants our full allegiance, is what he's saying. And yet, how many times do we say, I give pledge allegiance to the flag and for which it stands? And how many times are we thinking about, actually, America, I've already pledged my allegiance to someone else. And so, wherever you stand on that, it must come second, if you're a follower of Jesus. He calls for our allegiance first and foremost. He says that if we will give our lives over to him, giving him full authority over us, letting him define for us what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad, what the purpose of life is and isn't. If we will let him teach us how to live and how to die and everything that comes in between. He wants us to lose our lives by handing them over to him. What others in this world might see as us forfeiting, you must hate your life. Oh, you're wasting your life and the wonderful opportunities in this world. Jesus says, no, if we do this, we will in fact be saving our lives for the life that really matters. The full, overflowing, eternal life, the life that is given to us in Jesus that will go on and on and on, the life of the age to come. Jesus says if we are gonna serve and we have to follow him in this particular way, we have to lay down our palm branches and hand over our lives. And this is beautiful because what Jesus is in fact doing in this passage is he is inviting us into his own identity and mission. His way, the path that he took, he is the one who is forfeiting his life, isn't he? 
He's the one walking into a death trap in Jerusalem. And even though he has the power to deliver himself, he's not going to. He's losing his life for the sake of the kingdom. He's losing his life for the glory of the Father, for the sins and rescue of the world. And what he says is the Father is going to greatly honor him for it. And Jesus says the same for us. If we hand our lives over, if we follow him, the Father will honor us. We're on the same path with Jesus. Listen to Paul. In Philippians, he says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, lifted him up, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is king to the glory of God the Father. Jesus says, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. We get to share in that glory and honor of Jesus Christ. This is astounding. It's that glory that Paul talks about, right? It hasn't been seen, heard, or thought of in this life. It's beyond compare. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts this call of Jesus in his book, Mere Christianity. He says this, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work, you know, almost like compartmentalizing our lives, handing pieces and bits over to God. He says, I want you. I haven't come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. Hand over the natural self, all the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked. The whole outfit, I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. Again, this idea of Christ's life infusing ours, animating our lives. This is what he is calling us to. Hand over your life. Follow me. And so I just want to close looking at what it looks like to follow Jesus. For some of you, you might be hearing this for the first time. You've maybe heard of a Christianity it's about getting saved and going to heaven when you die. But this is not the Christianity, the salvation that Jesus preached. Jesus preached about us handing our lives over to him, becoming his disciples, and living out the kingdom of heaven until he comes to reign again. For others of you, this is an old familiar call, but maybe a call that you have forgotten. And so I challenge you, encourage you to hear it afresh, to open yourself up to Jesus and to his call and offer on hand. As we enter into Passion Week, to think again what it means to follow Jesus, to be his disciple.
Now, a disciple or an apprentice was someone who would give themselves over to their master or their teacher. And the disciple would do this essentially in three moves. A disciple would be with the master. A disciple would practice the way of the master, become like the master. And eventually, the disciple would do what the master did. Now, let me just say this before we go on. Discipleship or apprenticeship to Jesus is the only real way to follow him. Every other way, every lesser way is untrue. And it will not lead to life as John and Jesus describe it in this gospel. Here and now or life in the age to come. It's not compartmentalizing. It's not adding Jesus on but it's handing over the whole person, passions, everything, perspective, political views, the whole gambit, handing it over to him, submitting it to him and saying, Lord, do what thou will. Have your way. Even this morning, this might be the very thing that you are missing in your life. You know about Jesus. You believe in Jesus but you followed at a distance, thinking that that is enough. Jesus calls you. If you're gonna serve me, you must follow me. So let's look at these three things. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what he did, and then we'll close. So what does it mean to be with Jesus? Well, what a disciple would do, and what the original disciples did, is that they spent three or so years as apprentices of Jesus, right? They just followed him around. They slept where he slept. They ate where he ate. They drank what he drank. They went places that they did not want to go. Awkward situations. They just went everywhere with Jesus. Immersed themselves in the paths that Jesus took in the crowds that Jesus associated with. They were just with him. You ever have that experience where you spend a lot of time with a dear friend, or maybe even in your marriage? The longer you spend with this person, the more you take on their personality and characteristics, their rhythms, habits, their preferences. Jesus calls each one of us we're gonna follow him, we need to be with him. Be with him. Well, what does that look like practically? I think it's an awareness and connection to Jesus the person. Jesus the person? Why do I say it like that? I say it like that because I think that this is a piece of Christianity that's been lost on many of us. And Maybe it's because we tend to see the world in a fixed, scientific, rational way. So we often speak of Jesus as an ideal. If we speak of Jesus, maybe we'll speak of the imitation of Jesus. We'll go, you know, speak of the way of Jesus, what Jesus said, 
We'll talk about those things. We might go so far to speak of him as reigning as the king of heaven, but I think that's it. We speak about Jesus so that he has become an ideal, but we don't speak to Jesus as a living person. And so I'll ask this, are we practicing and engaging the living presence of Jesus? As disciples, are we prioritizing time to be with Jesus? And to me, this is the grandest offer of Christianity. We get Jesus through all the highs and all the lows. He's with us as a dear friend for the Christian. Though we might be forsaken, though we might walk through a cancer treatment alone, we are never alone. For Jesus walks with us. He's present in our suffering. He's present in our blessing. We're never alone, but do we engage the living Christ in this way? Over the last few years, I I woke up to this. I was doing many things for Jesus. I was talking a lot about Jesus, but I personally wasn't talking to Jesus, spending time with him, just with him in his presence, just enjoying him like a friendship. Just marinating in his presence, letting his life, you know, like Paul says, as we behold the image of Jesus, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. Just letting that transfer of his life happen. Well, how do we do this? I think we do this by practicing time alone with Jesus. I think we do this by reading the Jesus story again and again and again. My mom has this practice that she told me about years ago, and I've copied her ever since, but she just said, I just want to be in the Gospels. I just want to behold Jesus. I just want to watch him and hear him and observe, like, you know, how he talked to people what his posture was like, who he associated. I just want to take it in again and again and again. I think that's right. I think that's what we should be doing as apprentices, as disciples of Jesus, taking in his story again and again, more than anything else, letting this story of Jesus, Jordan was talking about this on Wednesday night, letting the life, death, and resurrection be the reorienting event of our lives, the thing that is transforming us more than anything else, the filter through which we see everything else. And so we read the story of Jesus again and again, but we think about his person. We talk to him as a friend and confidant, a counselor and guide, as I said, a friend who journeys with you along the way of life. As I said, this is something that I began to practice in the last few years. I'll just sit out on my porch or my balcony now and I'll just sit there in silence with Jesus, just practicing being with him. Sometimes I'll have a chair next to me. It's empty, but I'm just talking to Jesus, spending time with him, thinking about him, cultivating the spirit of his presence. As I go 
out with my kids. We were at the beach yesterday. I'm just thinking about Jesus, the creator. I'm thinking about the glories and beauties of creation. And I'm just being like marinating in it. So the call of disciples, be with Jesus, just be. The second call of discipleship is become like Jesus. Practice the way of Jesus. For me, I believe that the Sermon on the Mount is the most important teaching of Jesus for disciples and for God's people. I think it's where we learn the way of Jesus and the way of the kingdom of God. It's how we practice the way of Jesus. Even in Jesus' sermon, it kind of is these brackets, but he says these two things. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, not the law of Moses, but the commandments that he's giving, he says, and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then he ends his sermon with these words. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, or other translations say, practices them, will be like a wise person who built their house on the rock. See, the teachings of Jesus contained in the Sermon on the Mount are not just to be heard or learned or just philosophized over, oh, I like this bit, I don't like this, but this bit resonates with me. It's like a manual for life. He isn't asking our opinion on these things, right? Like, oh, here, you know, take this manual, take a few pills, come and let me know, you know, what you think about it. It's like, you're gonna follow me? Here it is. This is how you follow the way of Jesus. Practicing the way of Jesus, growing in the fruit of the Spirit is the gymnasium for the disciple of Jesus. By practicing the way of Jesus, we do what Paul exhorted Timothy to do, to train for godliness. You ever read that and think, What's he talking about? Where's the Jesus dojo, right? Where do we go to train and exercise for godliness? We go to the teachings of Jesus. We go to the life of Jesus. And we imitate him. This is how we grow in character to become more like Jesus. By practicing his way of life, listen, by practicing forgiveness, not when people say sorry, not when we like people or when it's easy, but especially when it's hard. By practicing non-retaliation, by practicing meekness, peacemaking, mercy, sincerity, purity, faithfulness or fidelity, fasting, prayer, simplicity, love of God and love of neighbor, love of our enemy, practicing grace, finding our identity in Jesus and his mission, practicing the spiritual disciplines, finding our place in a community of Jesus followers. And this is the idea, church. We be with Jesus, but then we practice the way of Jesus so that it becomes second nature. Right? Any musician, any athlete understands this. And, you know, artists and 
All sorts of people understand this, right? I remember when I first started playing guitar, it was awful. It hurt like crazy, right? My fingers bled. It felt like, you know, like raw bone on the string. And yet, doing it again and again and messing up and then correcting it and doing it right, or what we might call as Christians, failing, confessing, repenting, believing, and obeying. Failing, confessing, repenting, believing, and obeying again and again and again and again and again until we do by second nature the things that Jesus would do. This is how character is formed. This is what discipleship and apprenticeship is. You go on the job site, you learn how to be a plumber, and guess what? You get it wrong. There's a lot of failing and poop and all sorts of things in that process, right? And yet over time, you get it right. And then you get it right again. And then you become proficient as a plumber or as an electrician or whatever it might be. But you learn the way so that it becomes your very own. This is what Jesus is calling us to do. And then finally, right, we be with Jesus, we become like Jesus in order to do what Jesus did. Jesus said this, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. So let me ask you this. Are you training to be like Jesus? Or are you just letting Jesus be Jesus? And I don't mean that like in a salvific way, right? Let's, let's continue to do that. But are we training to be like Jesus? Or have other narratives, have other passions taken that place? Have we given our allegiance to someone or something else? Remember, Jesus says, if you're gonna follow me, hand over your life. Become my disciple, become my apprentice, be with me, become like me. Be fully trained in order to do what I do, in order to do what I did. What did Jesus do? Essentially, I believe Jesus alerted people to the presence of the kingdom of God by both words and his deeds. And he calls us to do the same everywhere we go, that we would put the life of the kingdom of the heavens on display, that when people talk to us, it's as if they were talking to Jesus himself. That's what it looks like to be an apprentice, to be a disciple. What did Jesus do? He preached the gospel. He taught the way of the kingdom. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He did justice. He ate and drank with those who were far from God. He prayed and he prophesied. He stood up against religious hypocrisy and pride, and he spoke truth to political power. And he calls us to do the same. Follow the way of Jesus. Put the life of the kingdom of the heavens on display. Alert people to the present reign of God. So as we think about Palm Sunday this year, as we go into Passion Week, I ask you to hear the call of Jesus once again to follow him to the cross 
follow him to his death and hand your life over once again. Let this be a recalibrating moment to come home to Jesus. To be his disciple, to learn his rhythms of grace. This is your goal as a disciple. This is my goal for the rest of our lives. We're taking our lives and we're just asking ourselves, what would it look like if Jesus had my life and my opportunities? As we be with him, as we practice his way, what would it look like for me to put the life of Jesus on display at work? Does that mean that I go around saying Jesus, 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 Jesus to everybody? No. It means that I do really, really great work. I think about my employees. I think about my employer. I think about how people are treated. I think about the love that God has for everyone. And I try to put all of those things on display. I'd be a peacemaker. I choose meekness and mercy over retaliation. What would it look like if Jesus had my life and my opportunities? That's your goal and my goal for the rest of our lives to live as apprentices of Jesus of Nazareth. And as we do this, we will be doing what Jesus calls us to do in this passage, handing over our lives to him in order that his life, his mission of rescue might be put on display, in order that he might be lifted up, put on display through our lives for the world to see. So let him bring you into his mission to the world and come and share in the glory that he has been given by the Father. Will you, will I, will we throw down the palm branch and hand our lives over? Will we be those seeds that are planted in order to bring a kingdom harvest? I pray that we will. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, come. Come, Lord, and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Make this word alive. May it be coupled with faith so that we might become, by your grace and your spirit, what you purchased us to be your people who put you and your kingdom on display, your people who live the life of the kingdom of the heavens even now. Lord, may your kingdom be reborn in us today. And as we do this, do as you promised. Draw many people to yourself. Bring them into your kingdom and your glory. Lord Jesus, the reputation of the gospel, the reputation of you, Lord, your character, it has been marred in our time. 
It has been so misrepresented. We have given our allegiance to so many other things in the name of Christianity. But we pray today, Lord, this church, that we would throw down those palms, however lightly we may be holding them even, that we would throw them down and we would hand our lives over to you. For your kingdom's sake, for your name's sake, for your glory's sake, we pray.